You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Like here, we're about to get into the word uh, in a second. We've been in the book of First Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in chapter ten today. You can go ahead and turn there. I'm uh, going to go ahead and let you know Paul's going to be hitting on one of the same topics that we uh, were in that I preached on in November. So some of it's going to going to sound pretty pretty similar, but I think there's some new things that we can pull out from the text as well. I don't I don't know if you've had one of these moments before. When I was in college, I was a part of a, a ministry called the Impact Movement, and we had students who would come in, and they would begin walking with God, and they just became Christian, began, began walking with God for the first time in their lives, and they had a lot of different questions. Questions like, can I still go to frat parties? Can I still, okay, what if I go but I don't drink? Can I, is that okay? It is okay if I do that? Okay, me and my boyfriend, me and, me and my girlfriend, how, how far can we go without it being too far? Right? Like, how far can we go without it being in sin? There's generally this, the, uh, so many questions that, that come up. I want to remind us as we're in 1 Corinthians today that these are real people dealing with real issues, with real questions. A lot of the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul responding to their questions and instructing them because, again, they're a very young, very new church plan. I think they're less than two years old at the time when, when Paul writes this letter. So they have all these questions. So they're asking him again about, well, they're at, well, he's responding, I should say, again to their question about what about this food that's offered to idols? Now, I got to make sure we, we understand uh, the principles that Paul pulls out here because we're, that's not as common in our culture. At that time, for them, they were in a very polytheistic society. Basically, people worshiped many, many different gods. They had a lot of temples that were set up, and there were these, these, these animals that would be killed and sacrificed to these false gods. And when there was leftover food or meat from these animals, it would get sold in the marketplace. It would get sold in, in restaurants. It would get sold at, at banquet halls, not necessarily for the purpose of worshiping that idol. But nevertheless, the, the Christians were going back and forth on it. It's like, I don't really know how to respond on this. Are we able to eat the food that's, that's, that, is offered up to, that has been offered up to idols, or should we abstain from eating this? So saying, Paul, can we participate in this? I mean, it's really to, this, to the point of what, what markets are we able to go in? Do we have to be asking questions about where this food has came from? We don't want to harm our witness for the Lord. And so Paul, as he does, answers their their questions. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll start at verse 23. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. All things are lawful. He said it twice, just in verse 23 alone. He'll say it two more times as we get into the rest of the passage, he's quoting a commonly used slogan or phrase by the Corinthians. Many theologians believe that this phrase, all things are lawful, basically means if, it's, if there's not a specific law that's telling me I can't do this exact thing, then it's okay for me to do, right? If, 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 if the Bible doesn't say this or if our society doesn't have a law saying I can't specifically do this thing, then it's okay for me to do. It's not illegal in any way. There's, I can't point to a specific scripture. Like Obviously, there are some scriptures that are very clear. In the Ten Commandments, we see do not lie. That's pretty clear. John 13, love one another. Ephesians 4, forgive one another. These things are very specific, but there are some 
things, some situations or circumstances that we'll find ourselves in where the Scripture doesn't explicitly talk about that specific situation. That was the case with the food that was sacrificed to idols for the Corinthians. There's no verse that's saying, hey, if there's an idol temple to the goddess of Aphrodite and people are sacrificing the animals, then you should or should not eat that food. So now they're having these discussions, these debates, these arguments in what we often call the gray areas. I like to call them more complicated areas where we have to use discernment, wisdom from the Lord. For example, one, one such thing for us, and one of the reasons I think it's such a struggle for many Christians, is dating. Right? They didn't do dating the way that we do dating now in our society. The way dating goes in general is very cultural. There are cultural norms that we generally abide by, at least to some degree. And the Bible doesn't say, hey, when you're dating, this is what you need to do. There's no exact scripture that, that says that. So what we have to do is be able to pull from principles from throughout the scriptures and apply them to things like dating. So we're going to read through uh, the rest of our passage for today. I'll get through it pretty quickly. Then we'll go back through and pull out some principles that Paul tells them that we can apply to these complicated situations and circumstances that we'll find ourselves in this life. So sometimes Paul is going to say, hey, do this specifically. And that specific thing, that's going to be pertaining exactly to what they're asking about. But again, around those direct statements and commands, he'll give us some principles uh, that are transferable to our time and to our culture today. Let's pick up at verse 25 and 26. Paul tells them, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul's telling them, if you find meat that's in the market, go ahead and eat it. Don't, don't ask any questions. You go into the grocery store, buy something. Don't, really, don't overthink this. Don't worry about your, your conscience bothering you at this point. Don't feel like you have to ask, excuse me, was this food sacrificed to an idol? Can you, can you check on that for me? He said, you don't, have to, you don't have to do that. You can just enjoy it. Everything belongs to God, including that you're able to enjoy it. You have that freedom in the Lord. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul says, now, if someone invites you over for dinner and they have meat, don't ask any questions about it, just go ahead and eat and enjoy it. He says, but then if somebody who is there says, you know that food was sacrificed to an idol, right? He says, and then don't eat it. He's saying, I'm not saying that it, that makes it wrong to eat in and of itself, but because of their conscience, because you don't want to throw off their understanding of what's right and wrong, of what it looks like to actually be a follower of Jesus, then you don't eat of the food if they tell you that it's been offered to an idol. Again, Paul, in verse 30, makes the point, as long as you're partaking of it in thankfulness to God, eating the food in and of itself is not bad, but if it will mess up someone else's conscience, then you don't want to do that. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He says, make sure you're doing everything to God's glory. 
Paul is saying that he does seek to please the Jews and the Greeks, but don't, don't misunderstand it. He's not trying to be a, a people pleaser, somebody who's just, I'm afraid of people not thinking highly of me, so I'm going to do whatever I think makes them think more highly of me. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't care whether or not people really care about him or love him so much as he cares about whether or not they love God. So he's going to do what he can do and do what he needs to do to make sure he's not putting any stumbling blocks in anyone's way. So addressing these complicated or these gray areas, Paul brings up five times in that passage the word conscience. The word conscience. A conscience, your conscience is your, your kind of your moral compass, right? It's what alerts you. It's that feeling in your gut that this isn't a right thing to do, whether you're doing it or someone else is doing it, or it's that feeling that, that you see something like, yeah, that's good. I affirm that. That's okay. Your conscience is your understanding of what is right and what is wrong. Now, again, it's your understanding, so it's more of a matter of your mind than it is a matter of your will. So your conscience doesn't compel you to act in a certain way, but it lets you know if you do something wrong, your conscience is the thing that lets you know, yes, that's wrong, that was off, you shouldn't do that. Now, there's a term that, we, that some, I guess some educational fields use. Uh, the term is ethics. Ethics are a set of moral principles that guide a person's behavior. Paul is dealing with what our ethics are as believers. What are the principles that, that guide our behavior, that let us know if something is right or if something is wrong? We want to make sure we understand our conscience. I want to just explain a few different things. First of all, first thing we need to know about our conscience is God gave each of us a conscience. Right? We were created in God's image. In my opinion, this is one of the... Um, the biggest reasons it's easy to believe that we were actually created by a God who cares about right and wrong and who cares about justice because every person that has ever lived have some sense of this is right or this is wrong. We have some sense of this is something that should be done. This is something that should not be done. This is an important part of how God has made each of us. Now, we don't always agree on what's right and wrong, which means that even though we're made in God's image and we have a conscience, our consciences aren't always right. The fact that I might see something and think that it's wrong and you might look at the same thing and say that you think it's okay shows us that we can't always trust our conscience. Our consciences are flawed by sin. Every one of us. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it's not just that our, that our bodies were, were corrupted. It's not just that the earth was corrupted. Our very conscience, our very understanding of right and wrong was corrupted. It's not just that now we have a sinful nature, now we do things that are right and wrong, but it's that our understanding, our grasp on what is right and wrong is off. We, we have to have some amount of suspicion about our feeling in our gut. We, we, we can't be so arrogant as to believe that we always know what is right and always know what is wrong. The, the, the effects of sin run deep in us, in our, in our hearts, in our will, and also in our mind and our understanding of what's truly right and what's truly wrong. Not only are our consciences flawed by sin, your conscience is affected by the people around you. How many times have you asked somebody if something was okay to do, and they start the next sentence with, well, how I was raised, we... Well, when I was growing up, we did this. Well, I was always taught this. Oh, man, back in the day, when we had morals, we used to do this. But now, you know, it's okay for you guys to do whatever you want to do, you millennials. Wow. <laughs> what are they saying? They're saying that they're acknowledging that part of my understanding of what is truly right and is truly wrong is affected by those who are around me. That we're not just existing in, in, in a vacuum where we don't have any outside influences, but the people that we, that we call our people, 
The people you consider to be your people affect the way that you view right and wrong. We have to be able to acknowledge this. We have to come to terms with this. I was talking to uh, a sister in the faith. She doesn't, she doesn't go to this church. She comes from a culture uh, that's way more collectivist than what is common in, in America today. And in, in her culture, the, the parents take care of their, of their kids, obviously, as much as they can. But then there was a great expectation for once the children are able to do so, they take care of the parents. So in that culture, uh, the parents can't fathom their child moving away from them and from where they live, because the expectation is, well, I took care of you. Well, I had strength to do so to the best of my ability. Now the expectation is for you to do the same thing for me. And so she, she, she was saying that for her mother, it, 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 it was seen as wrong for, for children to move away from where their parents are. It was her culture. Obviously, today in America, generally speaking, there's such individualism that that is unthinkable. Who's right? Who's wrong? Our consciences are affected by our culture. If you heard that and that, that seemed far-fetched to you, that's because of the culture you live in. That's been ingrained into you what is right and what is wrong, what's okay and what is not okay. Our consciences are affected. They don't just ex- exist in a vacuum. It's not the things that you believe are right and wrong don't just come from your own thoughts. They don't just come from, from you looking at the world objectively and saying this is the way that things should go. No, you're affected by your people. God gave us a good conscience. Our consciences were influenced by sin, and they're influenced by those around us. But thank God for the Holy Spirit. Amen? The good news for us is that we have help. Specifically, we have a helper if we are in Christ. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That God sends his spirit, his spirit, his Holy Spirit comes in us, lives in us, and directs us and guides us largely through the Bible whom the Holy Spirit inspired. Largely by reminding us of what we've seen in God's word to direct our conscience. And as we grow and mature as believers, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and frees us from the power of sin over us, it also frees us from the deception that we have and what we've taken in, maybe from our culture, maybe from lies we believe. The Holy Spirit corrects us as we yield to him, as we put our eyes on his word, which he inspired. He helps us to navigate through these gray or complicated areas. Here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. We're going to go back through some of, the, some of the verses that we went through in this passage and look at how does Paul talk about the ethics that a Christian should embrace? How does a Christian approach these complicated, these gray areas, so to speak? We'll pull some principles out and seek to apply them to our lives. So we'll look back at verse 23 and 24. Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Here comes the principle right here. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's Paul about a complicated issue, a complicated situation. The first thing he instructs them on is, okay, you seek your good or the good of your neighbor? First thing he brings up. Yeah, there's technically no law against this, but is it not? Is it helping anything? Yeah, there's no law against it, but is it building up? And don't miss. This is a huge statement. I think we see so many statements like this in the Bible that we just gloss over it. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Hey, Corinthians, one of the ways that you can discern this 
One of the ways that you can know you're making a good decision, are you more so valuing your own good or the good of your neighbor in this situation? When you find yourself in these complex situations, what are you, first, what are you thinking about the most, your good or the good of others? I pick on millennials like, a lot like I'm not a millennial, right? Uh, obviously, we have a lot of millennials in our church. I believe statistically millennials move more than any other group of people ever on the planet. As far as a, a age, generational um, way of categorizing. And now moving isn't saying, there's, obviously there's no Bible verse that, that talks about, if you're going to move around, this is how you do it. But at the same time, we need to be able to think well about it because of how frequently we do this in our culture. One of the questions we should ask, am I only considering myself in this? Am I just seeking my good, or is this a decision that is being determined by how it will be good for others as well? Is this move going to help me serve others? Is it going to make it harder for me to serve people that God may be calling me to serve? Paul uses that word helpful in verse 23. It's the same word that two chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is interpreted common good. When he said, is it helpful? It's interpreted common good. Actually, in the chapter, he's referring to spiritual gifts and saying how they should be used for the common good and the edifying of the Bible. So when he's talking about, is it, is it helpful? We have to at least have an eye towards, as I'm thinking about the people of God, is this is what I'm doing, whether it's moving or anything else, is this helpful for the church, for the people of God, for God's people? He goes on to say the same language he uses in chapter 12 as well when he's talking about spiritual gifts. He says, not all things build up. Some translations, not all things edify. He's talking about the work that all Christians play in edifying the body of Christ. Or, are these decisions that I'm making might help edify the body of believers? It's not a sin to have nice, expensive things. It's not a sin. At the same time, we need to be able to ask biblical questions, though, right? Is this helpful? Is this beneficial? Does this build up? Am I seeking my own good over the good of others? When I look at, when I, if I looked at your budget, we just laid it out. No, 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 not your budget, because your budget is what you say you're going to do. Not your budget. If, if I looked at how you actually spend your money, right? You, you said your budget before the month starts, right? But I'm talking about if you look after the, at the end of the month. If we looked at your budget, if we looked at your, your, your spending, your bank account, your transactions, is it being done to seek our own good or the good of our neighbors? Are, are we saying, well, it's lawful. I mean, it's okay for me to spend my money on this thing, right? There's no Bible verse that says that I shouldn't. Am I using the resources God has given me to fund his mission? Am I using the resources that God has given me to build up and edify the body, am I using it generously, understanding that it all belongs to him? Does my budget show that I'm seeking my own good? These are questions we have to ask. There's no blueprint in the Bible for how you're supposed to spend your money. It's not going to tell you percentages or anything like that, but Paul is giving us the questions that we need to be asking. The first question was, does it seek the good of my neighbor? The second, does it hinder or help me as an ambassador for Christ? Does it hinder or help me as an ambassador for Christ? Verse 32, Paul says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, 
that they may be saved. In his second letter that we have from Paul to the Corinthians, or what we call 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we're all ambassadors of Christ. He says that's who we are. It's not just something we do part-time. This is who we are, ambassadors of Christ. And an ambassador is someone who, who goes to a foreign land representing his home country or his home kingdom or his home nation. Someone whose purpose is to represent, if, if it's a kingdom, represent the king and the kingdom, represent the way of life, represent the culture, the way of thinking, represent the rules and the legislation that are there. Paul says this is who we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, and we are here to faithfully represent our king, Jesus Christ. Again, he's not saying he's a, a people pleaser. He says he wants to navigate these decisions by thinking through, does this help me to faithfully represent who God is to a people who do not know him? Does this help me to reveal to others who God is, or is it hindering my ability to do that? You're in a conversation at work. Sounds kind of gossipy. Sounds kind of demeaning to some other people at work. How do you respond? What do you laugh at? What do, you, what, what, what do you say in those moments? You are a representative. You're an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven in those moments. How, how you respond, does it hinder your ability to faithfully represent who God is? We need to be quick to seek the Holy Spirit in these matters. Lord, help me. I don't, I don't know exactly what to say, how to do this. We, we know that the Holy Spirit lives in us and dwells us and empowers us to follow God. We need to seek him. Going to work. God, help me. I, I want to represent you well and faithfully today. I want to show off who you are. When I first heard about the concept of church planting, I first heard about a church plant in Philadelphia named Epiphany Fellowship. And so I just started reading up about them. I was listening to their sermons, podcasts, all this stuff all the time because I didn't really know what church planting was, but I was feeling called to it. So anyway, I heard one of the pastors telling a story. So they were inner city church planting in an impoverished part of, of inner city Philadelphia. And people were coming to, to know the Lord who, li who lived in that area. And they were uh, probably kind of like us, but even more so dressed very, not just casually, but dressed probably at that time, just real hip-hop, where the hip-hop scene was at that time. And so they would have guys passing the communion uh, plates around with their hoodies on, with the hood thrown over their head. So that was just kind of, kind of the way they rolled. That was, their, that was their flair. And it was like, well, the Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't do it. And they were okay with it. And then some of the older, I think some of the older women that were either members of the church or getting involved in the church, it, it, it seemed irreverent to them that that was going on. It was a stumbling block. It was like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can connect here. Y'all seem, seem to not be approaching this reverently. But one of the guys who was doing it, he said, no, this is, I'm free to do this. There's no law that says I can't dress this way when we're passing out communion. They were like, you just holding on to traditionalism and, and got upset. But the pastor said, he, he went to him and said, yes, you do have freedom in Christ, but we're not going to use our freedom to be a stumbling block to anybody. He said, if it, if it is going to be more inclusive to people who are connecting with our church to pull your hood down, you're going to pull your hood down, or you're not passing out communion. We make the sacrifices that are necessary. We have to ask ourselves these, these questions. Of this freedom that I have, am I, am I using it in such a way that it actually hinders my ability to represent Christ well? Does it hinder our ability collectively as a church to represent Christ well? 
We ask the questions, does it seek the good of my neighbor? Does it hinder or help me as an ambassador of Christ? And the third question, I would say, is the climax of the passage. Am I doing it for God's glory? This is the one that the other two sit under. This is the one that sits over all of our thoughts regarding ethics as a Christian. Am I doing it for God's glory? The Christian ethic and principle that sits over all others. The glory of God is mentioned about 275 times in Scripture. It's an incredibly deep and rich word. It can refer to God's splendor, his beauty, his magnificence, his, his holiness. It can refer to his, his excellence, his majesty, his wonder, his radiance. Doing something for his glory means you're doing something for the purpose of honoring God. Paul says no matter what you do, whether you eat the food or not, whether you drink or not, you do it for the glory of God. As Christians, we are those who have come to witness the saving grace of our God. We've come to, we've come to actually believe the fact that God himself, creator, perfect in holiness over all of the universe, stepped down to earth, walked among us, that God actually walked among people, allowed himself to be persecuted, allowed himself to suffer that he might redeem us so that we can go and be with him forever after dying in our place for things that he did not do. That's what we believe as Christians. And the response to become a Christian is one to say, and now because of that, when I see how good he is, when I see his glory, when I see how awesome he is, I now choose to live for his glory and not my own. I now choose to prioritize his glory over my preferences I now choose to prioritize his glory over what I want to do. I now choose to prioritize him. I now choose to trust him. I see what he did for me, what he is doing, and what he will do. And we arrive at the conclusion that it is worth it to lay down our lives for his glory for every moment of our lives until he calls us to be with him. That is what we profess as Christians that a life fully spent for his glory is the appropriate response to what he has done for us. Sadly, at this point, we live in a culture that seems to be moving closer and closer to only having one primary ethic. And I'll explain why I say this. It seems our culture is moving closer and closer to just only having the ethic of, is this thing hurting anybody? Obviously, that's important. It's important that we ask this question, is it hurting anyone? But what I'm saying, just so, you, just so we're very clear, I'm saying that it is becoming, in some, in some instances and in some conversations, the only way people decide if something is right or wrong is, well, it doesn't hurt anybody, so I guess it's fine. Is it, is it hurting anyone? I would bet if you ask many of the people in Columbia that you know, is having sex outside of marriage wrong? No, it's not hurting anyone. If you went down the list of the Ten Commandments asking if, 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 they, were, if they were morally and, ethic, and ethically wrong, probably you would hear the ones that, that, that things like murder or stealing that hurt people, they would say, yeah, that's absolutely wrong. But the other ones like coveting something that doesn't belong to you, it's like, well, it's not hurting anybody. I, think it, I don't think that's that bad, is it? Very common ethic in our day. In fact, there was a moral psychologist named Jonathan Haidt he did some research that kind of supports this. He came up, I don't, I'm going to spare you the details because it's, it's horrible, but he came up with this very graphic, hypothetical situation to, to test to see where our moral ethics lie. 
So he's traveled from, from country to country, culture to culture, and to try to understand how do we as people think about morals? How do we as people think about ethics? And so he went to the University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania and he, he surveyed a bunch of their college students. And he, he, gave, he came up with this extremely graphic story of bestiality with a dead animal. And he asked them, and he asked them, is it morally wrong? He pulled a bunch of students at the University of Pennsylvania, 73% said, no, I don't think that's wrong. 73% said, I do not think that that is wrong. One student was quoted to say, it's his animal, nobody's getting hurt. Nobody's getting hurt. How can it possibly be wrong? No one's getting hurt. Maybe you think this is pretty far-fetched and unbelievable. We actually had a college student at our, at our downtown church ask a pastor within the last two weeks, is cannibalism a sin? Is cannibalism a sin? Here in Columbia, South Carolina, this was asked. Our culture is moving quickly. I'm telling you, this is the real truth towards this, this concept that the only way that it's actually wrong is if it is hurting someone. Other than that, then just do you. Don't let nobody tell you what to do. Don't let anyone put their restrictions on you. As the psychologist was studying morality in many different cultures, one of the points he made that there are five common prevailing ethics that, that kind of govern the way we believe, and some cultures prioritize some more than others. And what he was saying was that our culture is, is extremely high and growing uh, with the younger, the younger the generation is, the more we view things through this lens of, does it hurt anyone? And that's the primary ethic that we use. He says that our country is decreasing in the more ethic of what he calls sanctity. Sanctity is the belief that because whoever I worship, whatever God I believe in says it's wrong, then it's just wrong, even if I don't understand it. Even if it's not hurting anybody, so to speak, it's just wrong. He says our country is decreasing, moving strongly away from the more ethic of sanctity, and strongly towards the more, the, having the only have the more ethic of harm, reducing down our understanding of what's right and wrong, reducing down our consciences to only ask, being able to ask the question, does it hurt anyone? As Christians who live for God's glory, we can't simply reduce our moral ethics to only seeing something as morally wrong if it harms someone. We know that people are made in the image of God worthy of dignity and respect. Anything that demeans a person, even their body, is wrong. Engaging in that type of graphic bestiality is wrong because it's demeaning to a person. Because God made people different. He created all of his creation and said that it was good. Then he, I, Human beings were the only part of creation that he picks up something and forms it and fashions it and makes it like him. Humanity. The only thing. Everything else, he spoke it. Light. The earth. The stars, everything, all these beautiful, glorious things. He just spoke it and it existed. Human beings have said he, he, he picks up dirt or clay, forms it to make it like him, breathes his own breath into humans, and then said it was good. Humans are different. We are valuable in different ways. Anything that is demeaning to someone made in the image of God is wrong. If you were to say something about somebody that's demeaning, even if they never hear it, so it never technically hurts them, it's just wrong. Regardless of if they hear it and it hurts their feelings or not, it's just wrong because they're made in the image of God. 
Because God made, made, made humans in this sacred way. The moral ethic of Christ followers is, am I doing it to the glory of God? If not, then something is off, period. Then something is off. We've subscribed to this weak, insufficient ethic of, well, does it hurt anyone? We've so reduced down our own consciences in a way that's beneath us as humans. Of course, we shouldn't go around harming people, but since we have a creator who is good and loving, we need to honor him in whatever way that looks like. When I was working as a personal trainer, uh, I, was, I hadn't been training maybe, maybe a year or so at that point, and we, we, the way we would, we would sell people is that we would get you to come in, do a tour of the gym, give you a free workout. That's kind of like the hook um, or the bait, and then we try to close the deal. Anyway, so... This woman that was there, I think she had some health issues or whatever, and she was, was considering hiring me as, a, as her trainer. And my boss was like, well, what about, what about your client? Uh, he said, or I won't use her name. He said, what, what about your client? Didn't, hadn't she lost like 50 or 60 pounds? Now, he, he and I both knew. She about, maybe lost 35. Maybe lost 35. He said, hadn't she lost like 50, 60 pounds? And in that moment, I didn't even know. I had no idea that was going to happen. I had to make a decision. What's my moral ethic? I personally believe that it would be very good for this person to have a personal trainer. I thought it would help with a lot of their health issues. Would lying hurt her? I didn't think so. Actually, glory to God, at that point, I was like, well, I, I didn't want to expose my boss was lying. But I said it in a way I think it was like, I think it was more like 35. I think it was more like 35 pounds that she had lost. And so we had to have a conversation with my boss afterwards. He approached me saying, and, you know, you got to do what you got to do to close the sale. We run the business. Everybody got to eat. All this type of stuff. Later on, he came to me and said, this is all glory to God. And I think you have about as much integrity as anyone that I've ever met. And I respect you so much for it. His moral ethic said it's not hurting anyone. But he admired sanctity. He operated out of a moral ethic of harm. Does it harm someone? No, that it's okay. But in his heart, there was a desire and an attractiveness to sanctity. We as the people of God who represent him as his ambassadors need to stand for sanctity, not succumb to the pressures of this world, not succumb to the, this weak reduction of all moral ethics, just is it harming someone and live as he has called us to. But we often reduce ourselves. I see this in my own self. And one of the things that I struggle with, still do, have struggled with, is a, a, an aspect of, of pride. And pride and shame kind of mixed together. Where I don't want people to see my sin. I, I don't like when people talk about things that I, I do wrong. And so this is a weakness of mine, something I, I struggle with. And I'm a preacher. I know that pride is wrong. Like, I know that a lack of humility is wrong. But I was telling, uh, I think I was telling Jomo and Matt, I think this was, was Friday, that one of the ways that God has used my marriage the most in my life is that it has caused me to fight against my pride, against my arrogance, because of how many times I've seen it hurt my wife. Which I think at the time that I said it, I thought that that was a really good thing, but then as I was preparing for the sermon, I realized I'm operating out of a moral ethic of harm. That I didn't begin to fight that sin as hard as I am now until I realized how much it was hurting somebody else. I know what the Bible says about it. 
It wasn't sanctity that drove me to this point of fighting against sin. It was the ethic of harm because deep down, functionally, I came to believe that as long as it's not hurting anybody, then I guess it's okay. So I'm not going to pay that much attention to it. I'm not going to fight it that relentlessly. I see in myself this being pushed and moved by the ethics of our culture today. Deceived into believing that it's, only, it's not really that bad unless it's hurting somebody, right? Do you have any sins like that? Where it's like, I don't really see it as that bad because it's not hurting anybody. I kind of feel like I'm getting away with it. I kind of do it on, on my own maybe, or maybe it's only in my thought life. So it can't be hurting anybody if that's the only place that it is and that it lives. What's that for you? The reality is when you boil it all down, I don't think most of our problem is that we don't think enough about ethics. I don't think most of our problem is that we don't know exactly right from wrong as Christians. I think most of our problem is that we don't care. We don't give a second thought to the glory of God in our day-to-day lives. We wake up on a Monday morning, you wake up tomorrow, you're tired, you don't want to start the work week, you're frustrated, you're just going into work, you're just trying to get your check and get home so that you can relax. We just don't even care about the glory. It doesn't even cross our minds. We're not going into whatever situation God is leading us to with with the prayer and asking God, God, help me to glorify you. It's going to be some tough situations today. Help me to see what it is to represent you well, to live for your glory in these complicated areas in my life today. We don't give it a second thought. We're more caught up in how we're doing. We're caught up in how our days are going. At home with our roommates, there's some type of conflict. Do we run to God? God, I don't know how to handle this, but I want to do this for your glory. You're in this conversation where there's gossip going on. Somebody's being demeaned. God, help me to know how to handle this for your glory. I'm in my life group meeting. I don't really feel like coming because it's late at night and I'm tired. God, help me to operate in a way that's for your glory. God, what am I going to do this morning before I go to work? Am I going to sleep in? Am I going to wake up early and do something that maybe I need to do? God, help me to do this for your glory. Tonight, when I'm tired and I just want to escape for an hour or two before I go to bed, God, help me to do this for your glory. Paul says, whether you eat or not, whether you drink or not, you do it for the glory of God. Because the reality is sometimes in some situations, I believe for the Corinthians there, eating the meat could be done for God's glory with thankfulness to him and saying, God, you've provided for me again. And sometimes eating the meat wouldn't have been for God's glory because maybe it would have harmed someone's conscience. Paul is saying, hey, I'm, the biggest thing is not what you do in this situation. The biggest thing is, are you doing it for the glory of God? We need to spend time in his word, meditating on him and his goodness so that we don't reduce ourselves down to this moral ethic that is lacking a view of how glorious our God is. I believe oftentimes we don't ask this question because we don't spend time gazing at God's glory. We don't spend time seeing just how good or remembering, I should say, how good he has been to us. We're going to partake in communion in just a few minutes. This is obviously what Jesus told us to do in remembrance of him. Today I'm asking us to remember just how glorious his sacrifice is. Just that, that this sacrifice is worthy of us saying, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live for your glory because I want more and more people to know you because I want to make you known. So today we remember how glorious our God is and that the only fitting response is that we would live for his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being good to us. 
Thank you for your love, your forgiveness, your sacrifice for us. Father, you, you, you are this, this glorious God that's beautiful in so many ways. No matter how we, we look at you, God, you've just been good to us. Father, will you give us a passion for living in such a way that will cause that glory to be seen by so many? Help us to live as your ambassadors that represent you by living for your glory, by living lives that proclaim that the most glorious thing in the universe is God. The best thing in the universe is God, and I want you to see him through me. Father, will you help us? I personally see in my life how I've gone the way of the world in this idea of ethics, this idea of what is truly right and what is truly wrong. Will you free us from that? Fill us with your spirit in such a way that it frees us from believing the lies that our culture tells us. Help us to value sanctity, value, value the fact that, that you said that this is how we should live. And even if we don't understand it, and if we, even if we don't know how it hurts anyone, that we will stand on your word and live as you have called us to live. Thank you for sending your son that we might know you, that you might free us from our bondage to sin. It's in Christ's name I pray.